Uh, today I want to talk about, uh, since it's Father's Day, the faith of a father. And uh, using a, a little bit of an outline by Roger, uh, Roger Thomas, because I loved how he broke down uh, the five different uh, elements of faith, and I really appreciate that. But how many have ever read the book, maybe some of you um, too young uh, to uh, remember, but uh, Dr. James Dobson wrote a book many, many years ago called Parenting Isn't for Cowards. Can we remember that? I mean, you don't even have to read the book to know what it's about, right? It's kind of like uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Uh, it's like, you know, I didn't read the book, but I know all about the book. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between men and women and how they think and how they react to things. Amen? But uh, the faith of a father is important. And Dr. Dobson, uh, in his books and Focus on the Family, helped, was a big help with uh, Donna and I, uh, learning how to be good parents, learning how to be the best parents we could be. And I don't think there's any perfect parent except God our Father in heaven. But, you know, we strive to do the best we can to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I had a, 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 in my spirit and in my soul back when Don and I were starting a family, and the biggest thing in my heart was thinking about generations, generational thinking, is I, I did not want my children or my grandchildren, especially my grandsons, to make the same mistakes that I have made when I was not serving God. I was raised in a dysfunctional family, so I didn't know about God until... I was probably 14 years old when I gave my life to Jesus, but it was a real struggle because I wasn't being discipled. I was just got saved and, and uh, did the best I could. But when we got married, I thought, I want to raise my children differently than what I was raised. And, uh, and, I, and we did everything we could to learn how to be good parents. I wanted to be a good dad. I had daughters. I kept waiting for the son to come, but they, the son didn't come. And, uh, but uh, by the time I had my five daughters, it's like, I don't care. I love having girls. You know what's fun about girls? It's like you get to see a lot of girl flicks, you know, the, like Pride and Prejudice and, you know, the Jane Austen stuff. And uh, we were talking, joking about uh, Grace Livingston Hill. Anybody know who Grace Livingston Hill is? Anybody know? She was back at the turn of the... 20th century and somewhere around there was writing the first uh, Christian romance novels and they were quite uh, different and entertaining but my daughters loved to hear those uh, book tapes uh, tapes back when they had cassette tapes as we traveled oftentimes and I would be driving along and listening to all that sap and rolling my eyes and thinking oh my gosh get to the point you know and listening to a <laughs> and the girls were back there on pins and needles just so excited to hear it and it's like but that's how that's how I raised them I had to I had to do the uh, you know be a part of those girl things and and looking back on it they were golden golden years and treasured memories I was going through my files this morning I don't know what uh, caused me to do that but in my office and pulled out my, ha I call it my happy file, my encouragement file. It's uh, notes and letters that people have given me over the years, and I have things in there that some that my daughters gave to me, and I made a copy of just a couple of them gave to my daughter this morning, Lisa, that she had made for me uh, while she was growing up, and a card she gave to me. And those are so precious to me because they remind me of those years that were so chaotic, so noisy, and uh, messy, and I used to think, oh, someday uh, it'll be quiet, and, and I long for those, and now I long for the days when it was noisy and messy. Well, I get, a, I get a reprieve of that when my grandchildren come, and they make things very noisy and very messy. So anyway, those are golden things, golden years. I just love those. Uh, but I love James Dobson. He helped us, and Focus on the Family is still on. And I encourage young families uh, and even grandparents to listen to Focus on the Family and support that ministry. 
But uh, in, in, uh, in that, I, there's a, a part where a guy, uh, it's written about a guy who stopped at the local grocery store on his way home from work to pick up a couple items for his wife. And you know how men, when they go to the grocery store, they go up and down and they start getting all kinds of snacks that the wife would normally buy. So this guy's going up and down the aisles, and as he wandered uh, kind of aimlessly for a while, searching out the needed groceries and kind of picking some other things up, as often as the case in the grocery store, he kept passing as he'd go up one aisle, another guy would come down with his cart, uh, down another aisle with his little, uh, apparently a little three-year-old boy, and they would kind of pass, cross paths as they would go down. And uh, it was uh, another father in that, pushing that other cart, uh, pushing in the basket a seat of totally uncooperative three-year-old little boy in the cart. The first time they passed, the three-year-old was asking over and over for a candy bar. I want a candy bar. And uh, the, the other father who was observing this uh, couldn't hear the entire conversation. All he could hear was the dad saying kind of in a calm, steady voice, now, Billy, this won't take long. And as they pass into the next aisle, the, they cross paths again, and the three-year-old, please, began to take on a whole new set of urgency and increased several octaves, and now the dad was quietly saying, Billy, just calm down, we'll be done in a few minutes. And then the next aisle, near the dairy case, they passed again, and this time the kid was screaming uncontrollably. Anybody been there? Uh-huh. Uh, dad was still keeping his cool, and in a very low voice, steady voice, he said, Billy, settle down, we're almost out of here. Well, the dad and his son finally reached the checkout counter and uh, just ahead of our observer, the other father, and he stood, uh, he still gave no evidence of losing his cool, losing his control. The boy was then screaming and kicking while the dad was trying to get his groceries checked out, and the dad was very calmly saying over and over, repeating over and over, Billy, we'll be in the car in just a minute, and then everything will be okay. Billy, in just a few minutes, we'll be in the car. Everything's going to be okay. Well, the bystander was so impressed with the patience and the calm of this man during this boy's screaming. So after paying for his groceries behind him, he hurried out to catch this man as he was loading his groceries, and he wanted to give him a, 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 he was an incredible example of patience and self-control. Uh, he was just in time to hear him say near his car as he loaded his groceries, now, Billy, we're done, and it's going to be okay. Uh, he tapped the patient father on the shoulder and surprised him. He said, sir, I just want to tell you how much I admire you and how you handled little Billy. And the father looked at him with amazement, and he said, Mr., I'm Billy. <laughs> I'm Billy. So self-talk can help you through rough situations. And, and uh, I'd admire the patience of that guy. So anyway, I think we can all agree, dads in here, moms as well as you know, fatherhood can be a challenge. As we consider the first time a father was taking his first turn at feeding a little baby infant, uh, you know, uh, uh, started eating strained peas. Anybody remember the strained peas? I don't know that a dog would eat those things. I mean, they were terrible. I hated the smell of them and and uh, everything. But so he was helping mom out, and he thought, "I'll feed the baby his peas." So naturally, there all there were all traces of food everywhere. You know what happens, especially when a, a baby takes a mouthful of peas and then sneezes. You know, it just goes everywhere. And so when uh, when mom came home, uh, everywhere on the floor, the ceiling, and especially on the infant and all over dad, uh, his wife comes in and sees this huge mess, and she looks at the baby, and then she looks at her husband. 
who appears to just be sitting there staring off blankly into space, oblivious to the whole situation, and his wife says, Honey, what in the world are you doing? And he said, I'm waiting for the first coat to dry so I can put on another coat. <laughs> so fatherhood has its challenges. I don't know how many of you dads helped out with changing diapers, especially messy diapers, but I did those things. I tried to avoid them as much as I could, but I did help out some. Uh, but uh, we do appreciate uh, what uh, mothers do, and uh, dads need to be engaged. Somebody say amen with their families. You know, there's a season of time when that will come quickly and it'll be gone. and It'll be too late to do all the things that you want to do and should do if you procrastinate. Somebody say amen. So uh, I want to look at our text today, and I'm taking it out of John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54, and I want you to take a look here. It's on the overhead if you want to follow along, <clears throat> and it says, at the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee, and he himself had said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had said in Jerusalem at the end of the Passover celebration, had seen everything that he did there. They saw the miracles. And as he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a government official in a nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. And when he had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, for he was about to die. And Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see a miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded with Jesus, Lord, please, please, come now before my little boy dies. And Jesus told him, go back home, your son's going to live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Say believed. The man believed what Jesus said. And while the man was on his way, some of his servants met him and asked the news that his son was alive and well. And he asked them, the servant, what time did my boy begin to get better? Uh, and and he, they said, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly, suddenly disappeared. And then the father realized that that was the very time that Jesus told him, your son will live. And he said to his entire, and he and his entire household did what? Believe. Say believed. They believed in Jesus. And this was the second John says, of the miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming into Judea. Now, we pray the blessing on God's word to our hearts, but I can tell you from experience that nothing is as hard, is so hard for a parent who's watching a little one who gets sick or gets hurt. Uh, I, I, every parent knows the feeling of wishing that they could trade places with that child who is sick. I can remember, I believe it was our daughter, Lisa, she was uh, back in Liberty, Missouri, when she was just a little girl, and uh, we had a bathroom window in our little bathroom. It was a small house, and in the backyard, right outside the window, there was monkey bars, and we were uh, entertaining her. She was the, uh, the pastor's daughter, who was a little bit older than Lisa, and the pastor's daughter, you know how pastor's kids are, you know? I dare you. I dare you to see if you can go across the monkey bars. Well, she wasn't quite strong enough, because she was still pretty small, but she was never one to turn down a dare, my Lisa. So she gets up there and starts going across the monkey bars. I'm in the bathroom taking a bath, and all of a sudden I hear this scream and this cry. Now, every parent knows 
the cry of their child. They know whether it's just, I, I'm hurt, but I'm okay, but I'm hurt, I'm really hurt. And that was a really hurt cry. And I leaped out of the bathroom. My wife was out the door. Well, uh, long story short, she was in the ER. She had broken her arm and, uh, and everything. So, you know, the cry, and it's just like hearing that pain. You don't want to hear your child or see them suffer. Um, I can remember Ellen, our youngest daughter, when she was first born, <clears throat> we kept the cradle next to the bed, as probably most parents do. The, the newborn baby is sitting there, and she's just, a, a, I think, a day old. We brought her home because Donna was in the hospital just 24 hours and came home with her. And, <clears throat> and instead of hearing the happy little, you know, funny little squeaks that a newborn baby makes when they sleep, <clears throat> instead we were hearing this, uh, this gagging and choking like she's going to die. And this went on for I don't know how many weeks. <clears throat> By the time I think she was three to four weeks old, she weighed so much less than when she was born. She was not thriving. Her eyes were sinking into her head as if she was malnourished, and we didn't know what to do. And ended up uh, worrying about her, staying up, couldn't sleep at night, worrying about her because in the middle of the night she would just start that end. Well, come to find out, we went to Children's Mercy Hospital. Our doctor referred us there, and she went through a number of tests with the specialist at Children's Mercy, <clears throat> and they found out that she has an underdeveloped esophagus. So... They had to put her on medication. There was different options we could use, put her on medication for seven or eight months, and she began to thrive. But the feeling that, listen, that we were losing our little baby, that she was getting worse, and that she might, sounding like she might die in the night, we were terrified. I would have rather taken her place uh, than for that to happen. That's how a father's love works, and I know my wife the same way. And it wasn't long. We went back to our family doctor, and he listened to our Little Ellen's heart was checking her over, and things seemed to be doing much better. And he says, oh, wait, there's something wrong. I thought, oh, here we go again. And uh, she has a heart murmur. We need to send you back to Children's Mercy Hospital so to the pediatric cardiologist so that they can find out if this is serious. Well, then we're on pins and needles again. Here we go again. But it's, it's rough when your child is sick. Come to find out it was a uh, minor heart murmur that she would probably outgrow, and, and so we were relieved again. But, you know, there's, there's something that strikes the heart of a father and a mother when your child is potentially sick. And I think about this man, this father, this nobleman who had a son who he was very, very sick and he was dying, and how this man must have felt. So uh, we need uh, to realize that that's common for fathers, for mothers to feel that way. And so if you've ever watched your child's sick and struggle, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we don't know much about this unnamed father in the story. It doesn't give his name in the scriptures, but does refer to him as a nobleman. And uh, what we do know is that uh, the writer of, of, uh, of uh, our, our, uh, John, as he's writing, he is talking about that he's a nobleman. He paints a graphic picture. Probably a member of the royal family, commentators believe, that probably the of the family of uh, Herod Antipas. And he had servants, we know, so we presume that he was uh, fairly wealthy. He had servants and, and quite a, uh, a number of, uh, of uh, benefits that average people oftentimes did not have, especially in this day. Uh, here's the heart of the matter. This nobleman was a father. That's the bottom line. And more than that, we know that his son was so sick that this man feared that he would die. Now, this man, with all of his power, with all of his wealth, with all of his resources and his connections, could not fix his son. Listen to me. Sometimes there are things 
and circumstances that are out of our control. We have no power to change them. And so his wealth and rank became secondary. They were set aside for his concern about his son. John includes several interesting details in his account here in the story. The most important is probably the fact that this man was the second of what John calls in his writings of John's gospel, uh, the miraculous signs performed by Jesus. John would later uh, state the purpose of why he wrote his gospel uh, and, and sharing about these miracles. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it says up here, you can see this, is the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, in this gospel. Verse 31 says, but these are written so that you might continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life by the power of his name. And so by the power of the word, faith is generated so that we might not only believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's my Savior and my Lord and forgive my sins, but so that we will continue to believe. Somebody say continue. It's not how well you start, but it's how you finish that really counts when you run the race. Somebody say amen. Amen. I think this is a sign. In particular, Jesus teaches some important lessons about the various forms of faith that we talked about in the introduction. And and, and in essence, we're going to talk about five different levels of faith. Number one, we talk about miracle-seeking faith. You know, there are so many people who say that, well, I don't really believe in God, but if he would show me some signs and wonders, I would believe. And for some people, uh, that might be the starting point for real faith when they do see a genuine bona fide miracle. But often, uh, it is a dead end. It doesn't really generate faith by observing that. It does stir interest in the reality of God. I know when my wife was healed of cancer, I thought my dad was going to get saved. I thought many of my relatives were going to get saved. I thought some of our friends were going to get saved. And really, they just listened to the story, went in one and out the other, and they kind of nodded, that's nice, and walked away. Miracle-seeking faith. This kind of faith is only as strong as the next miracle oftentimes. And, to the often, and, and too often, the plea of the miracle-seeking faith is kind of, Lord, what have you done for me today? You know, God has done some wonderful things for me, and I try never to presume on that. I try to treasure those things and remember them in the golden parts of my memory, but I don't want to ever get to a place of presumption where it's like, God, well, yeah, you did that yesterday, but what have you done for me today? Because you know the most important thing God has done for us yesterday is he died on a cross, shedding his blood for our sins to redeem us who would believe on his name from sin and death and destruction I'm so thankful for that. And to me, this is just me, everything else is a bonus. Somebody say amen. So John points out the prevailing attitude uh, of Jesus. When this man comes to him, you know, uh, you know the, the locals in this particular area around Nazareth didn't regard him as anything special. Remember, Jesus said that a prophet is, uh, is, has honor except everywhere except in his own country. But when the fame of Jesus and his works everywhere preceded his return to Galilee when he was coming back, they changed their mind about him. Uh, He was a superstar at this point, and man, they came out to see him, to watch for him in hopes that he would do miracles. They brought the sick and the lame and the demon-possessed, the blind and the deaf to bring to Jesus for healing. But Jesus' first response to the nobleman's plea, it was really more of uh, of a statement that he made out loud for the crowd, not just for this nobleman. He says, unless you people 
Notice, you people. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you'll never believe. You know, you've got to see continual miracles to believe. So, kind of really what's wrong with such faith? Have you ever sought God for miracles? I have. Uh, but if, first of all, it, it, this kind of faith easily degenerates into a place where we want to test God. And we don't have the right to test God, do we? As if we're offering God a deal. Have you ever heard someone say that I told God that if you'll do this and this and this, then I'll do this and this? It's like, let's make a deal with God. Amen? Have you ever done that? Don't raise your hand. But uh, sometimes it's played, let's make a deal. I, I remember an older man who was in World War II. You, many of you would know him. And uh, this is the deal that he kept. You know, he is on a on a troop ship uh, during World War II on the way to the uh, islands around Japan fighting the Japanese in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Kamikaze pilots were coming at the ship, the troop ship and you know, in the ocean, the armada that was there and uh, on the way to those islands and began to crash into the ship trying to destroy and kill everybody on board. Uh, kamikaze pilots were set in suicide bombers. And I remember that he, was, he said, uh, Pastor, I was so terrified he said, I was just terrified. Everybody was. I thought we we're going to die. And I prayed to God that day on the deck of that ship. And I said, God, if you will save my life and bring me home, that I will commit myself to serve you and be in church every Sunday. And I said, did you keep that? And he said, yes, I did. God brought me home. And I'm telling you, sometimes, you know, we can tell God things. God sees our heart and God sees our fear. And God will do this, but sometimes we just make deals with God that, God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this for you, as if God needed us to do something for him. In other words, sometimes it comes across as, if you wow me, then I'll do a favor by believing in you. I'll do you a big favor. Second part of uh, this kind of faith can be easily deceived. Too many people have been hoodwinked or bamboozled by every sort of crook and charlatan, skilled at magic or deception. Um, I, I know that uh, <clears throat> I've become, uh, over the years, try not to be, but somewhat sometimes cynical um, about uh, new uh, so-called revivals that break out across the country or the world because I've been uh, burned so many times. And, uh, you know, one such time was uh, many, many years ago and uh, when uh, there was this big healing ministry that had broken out and there was supposed to be all these incredible healings and only to find out that all the hoopla and all the, is that this guy who was supposedly doing these healings was actually running around with somebody in the ministry committing adultery and living like the devil while he was up preaching the gospel and laying hands on people to heal them. And that troubles me. But, you know, I'm going to let God be the judge of that man and of that movement. But, you know, it takes you to pause. I just want to kind of wait and see what the fruit of that is and what is the fruit of the person's life doing those so-called miracles. Matthew 24, 24 said, Jesus warned us that many <clears throat> false Christs and false prophets will appear to perform signs and wonders and miracles to deceive even the elect, if it's possible to deceive the people of God. And so we do need to be careful. We need to realize, test the spirits, the Word of God says about this. But the reality is, however, that miracle-seeking faith is seldom ever enough, that we need more than just miracle-seeking faith. What is God going to do for me? Most people treat miracles, uh, real or pretend, simply as an opportunity to demand another one. 
to be entertained, almost like a parlor game. Jesus offered a penetrating observation in his conclusion to the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember him, the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man fared sumptuously, the King James says, and so eloquently, uh, that he had all the finest things in life. He was dressed in purple, the royal colors, and and uh, lived the good life while Lazarus, a beggar, uh, sat outside the city, uh, the gates of the mansion that the rich man lived in, hoping, hoping to just get some crumbs uh, that the rich man might throw out or might be brought out to him. And it says that the Lazarus was sick and the dogs came, this sounds gross, but came and licked his sores. Well, you know, uh, there came a day when the rich man died and he went to hell. He didn't consider God in his life. He had all the good things in life. Lazarus, on the other hand, died, and he went to Abraham's bosom, which is paradise. And <clears throat> there was a great gulf fix between the two. You remember the story, right? And uh, Lazarus, excuse me, was over there enjoying the good things and the bosom of Abraham. And, and, uh, and the rich man was over here burning, and he was in torment. And he suddenly realized, he asked the question across the gulf, hey, Father Abraham, Uh, Can you send Lazarus over to dip his finger in some water and put a drop or two in my tongue because I'm I'm in torment in this flame? And and, uh, Abraham said, no, he can't come to you. You can't come here. There's a gulf fix between it. In your life, you had good things. Lazarus had bad things. You know, this is your lot. This is what you have reaped. And so he says, well, can he at least do this, making this request? Can he go back? And go to my father's house, and can he warn my brothers and my father's house that if they don't change their ways, that they're going to come to this place and be in torment? And what, did, what, did, uh, uh, what, did, what was said back to him by Abraham, he says, no, uh, if they won't believe the prophets, they won't believe those who come back from the dead. Rather prophetic in that story that Jesus shares, whether some believe real and some believe that it was a parable teaching by Christ. But there's a, there's a choice that we make, and uh, can, what can God do for me? And uh, he, as he cries out to Abraham, he had ignored both God and his needy neighbor in life, but he requests help of both now, and he is an eternal predicament. So he, he asked for personal grief. He asked that someone be sent back to his family, warm his family, and uh, Jesus simply through Abraham says that if they won't believe Moses, they won't believe, and the prophets, they won't believe, be convinced someone rise from the dead. So miracle-seeking faith, miracle-seeking faith is never enough. And I, I think it, uh, this is at least in part the reason why Jesus performed the miracle the way he did, because he didn't go with the man. I don't know about you, but if that was me, I'd want Jesus to come, come with me. You know, I want, I want you to come with me and, and to do this. I, you know, and, and Jesus said, no, you're, you're, your son is well. He's going to live. And so Jesus per- chose to perform what we call a long-distance miracle. Now, can I tell you something that probably most of you know? But God is not bound by time or space. He is omnipresent. He is er- everywhere at all times. And when, listen, when God speaks a word, and it goes out into the atmosphere. It will accomplish what he sets it out to do. Whether he is physically present at that location, in that situation, or whether he is miles away or on the other side of the planet. Somebody say amen. God doesn't have to be there. Jesus didn't have to go there. All he had to do was speak the word. 
That's the power of the anointing of the Word of God. And God still performs signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, there's, there's a biblical principle here that, uh, that says this, that faith is never about, listen to this, where you are, but it's about who you turn to. It's about who you turn to. Who do you turn to in a time of need and in a time of trouble? Can I ask you, and I'm asking people online watching this as well, is when your marriage is in trouble, who do you turn to? So many times. What do we do? We turn to our friends. And our friends take an offense against your spouse, and so they say, you need to get out of there. He doesn't appreciate, she doesn't appreciate you. You know, where, do we, where should we turn? should turn to the Lord. Turn to the one who has the answers and the solutions to your problems and to your issues. Now, it's going to take hard work on your part, but you've got to turn to the Lord and ask him to do a miracle. Yeah, seek after that miracle. Because God delights in putting broken things back together. He delights in healing and restoring broken people. He delights in restoring broken relationships. He delights in restoring children who have gone far from God. Children sometimes who have been abused by their father instead of loved and nurtured. But God can heal those hurts. He can restore your soul. He can make it as if it had never happened. He can take the bitterness and the hurt and the poison of, of bitterness out of your soul and restore you to where you can love the person who should have loved you the most. This is the power of God. This is when you turn to Him instead of turning to others. I'm going to talk about a second kind of faith. First of all, miracle-seeking faith, but the second level of faith is casual or academic faith or book-learned, you know, things you read in a book. How many know that many things you read in the book might be true and they might be good, but sometimes when you try to put them into practice, they don't quite work the way they did in the book? You're awful quiet today. But I'm telling you, some people have kind of an academic faith where they got it all up here, See, they know facts, they can recite scripture, they can tell you this and tell you that, but when you have to put it into practice, it's when the rubber meets the road that really counts, right? Otherwise, it's just a concept. It's just something that might be true, but you don't know for sure because you haven't lived it out yet. And so when you talk about casual academic faith, praying and worshiping provides really a nice, uh, wonderful thing to us, a respite from the routines of life. But I know a lot of people who come and they worship, but their faith is weak. It's built on a foundation of emotionalism rather than on the bedrock of Scripture and truth, scriptural truth. You know, uh, religious matters uh, kind of remain on the fringes of what really matters. And we all know people who uh, look to church membership as a a foundation for their life, but really you can be a member of the church and never experience the power and the presence of God the way God wants to reveal himself to you. You know, believing academically or intellectually, you're shortchanging yourself from the power and the presence of God to do wonderful things inside of you and in others around you. But you know, I'll tell you what, that casual academic faith crashes and burns when we are challenged with the reality of difficulty in life. And this father, who, this nobleman, this father, uh, who was probably religious, he probably had some kind of a faith or religion experience with God, maybe he went to the temple, 
But it was when his son was sick and his son was dying that that all changed. Suddenly he was being challenged to put to proof what you believe up here. Is it real or is it false? Have you ever been in a position like that? I have. When you know what you know, what you know, that is true. Because you read it in the, in the Bible. You've been taught it by great teachers and preachers under the anointing of the Spirit. But until you experience it yourself, it's just a concept. And you know what God likes to do? God likes us to be tested in our faith. Now, He doesn't create an environment of panic in our lives, but when the moments of panic come, God is there. And God's going to point out to us and encourage us to find out what we really, really believe. Either you believe this or you don't. Either it's real or it's not. This father was at that place. This father was at that place. He was right at the place where he was at a point of desperation. And uh, I don't know about anything else about what other people are thinking or doing what signs and wonders they're demanding or expecting from God, but this man, this noble father would say, I do know this. My son is dying and I want to see him get well. And he goes to Jesus, Jesus, can you help me? See, how did he know about you? He heard about him. He heard. Now, people were talking about him. They, they didn't have the Jerusalem press when it went out, oh, Jesus is in Galilee having miracle meetings each night. It didn't happen. It wasn't on the local news. They didn't have local news. But it spread by word of mouth from excited people who had seen the power and the presence of God and the miracles of God work through this man, Jesus, who not only did signs and wonders and miracles, but he actually cared and loved the people that he was giving relief to. And this man, hope against hope, was seeking after a miracle for his son. If it was for him, maybe he wouldn't have sought after that, but for Jesus he did. And he was crying out to the Lord, went up to him and asked him. His academic book-learned religion meant very little until this could be proved out as real. Jesus, can you help me? Have you ever been in a place where you're in a place of desperation, which is our next form, our next level of faith, is a desperate faith? Have you ever been in a place of desperation? I have. And I think if any of you live very long, you will come to a place where that's going to be you. And it's going to be a time when you begin seeking after God in a fresh way, in a passionate way that you never thought you'd ever have to before. I know the story of so many people at Calvary Church from over the years. Uh, I know that I've done a number of funerals over the years, as Pastor Curl did as well. We love those people uh, that we sent off uh, in their funeral services and memorial services, and we know that they're in heaven because they trusted in Jesus. But I can tell you that a desperate faith is better than a casual book-learned faith, and it's also kind of a little dangerous. But when we're desperate, we are prone to turn to anything for help. We're prone to take risks, risks, risks. I can say that I have been in several miracle services in uh, different places, especially in Kansas City, where uh, there were people, and there was a what they call the media calls faith healers, but is there at a service in Kansas City at the music hall, and this uh, healing evangelist 
was down on the stage and we were up, you know, tier here, tier here. We were up probably the fifth tier looking down, like looking down off a mountain. And to have this man of God point up into the highest balcony where we were and say, the man sitting up there. And the usher, you know, the helper went over and started pointing at people. No, 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 not him, not him, not, no, no, this man over here, over here in the khaki pant. And he, was, he pointed right to my friend standing next to me. Morcerello. And he said, that man there, God has just healed you of your allergies. And as we walked away down the steps when that service was over, my friend took his inhaler and, and, and he threw it down into the trash on the way down the steps. Believe God for anything. I don't think we can say it, overemphasize it, that faith is only as effective as the faith, who you put that faith in, and the object of who you put your faith in and your trust in. And in a desperate faith, in the wrong object will always disappoint you. Now, my friend, over the next several weeks, you know, he believed God, and then his allergies came back. And it was like, well, what happened here? Well, he went to the elders of his church, it was not a charismatic or Pentecostal church, and said, would you lay hands on me and anoint me with oil and pray over me? They did, and they left again, and they never came back. Putting your faith and trust in a man, in a healing evangelist, is not where you put it. You put it in God. But when the word of God is spoken through a man or a woman of God, and the word resonates with your heart and faith is stirred up, then receive what God has given to you as a gift. Faith without a reliable object is superstition or gullibility, and there's plenty of that to be had. Desperate faith is one thing. It's not a blind faith, because blind faith will believe anything just so much as I get the miracle that I want. But the Word of God tells us, as Jesus said, and I believe it's in um, Mark chapter 11, he told his disciples, have faith in God. I mean, that says it all. Jesus, have faith in God. We used to sing that old song. It's an old hymn, or not a hymn, but an old uh, uh, chorus we used to sing. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God for the answer. Have faith in God. Somebody say, well, pastor, that doesn't have very many lyrics. I mean, you know, it says it all. What more can we say? Have faith in God. Don't put your faith in men. Don't put your faith in in uh, false prophets, don't put your faith in false philosophies. Put your faith in God and God alone. God will help you. He will help you. Back in uh, 1978, if I got my year right, my wife always corrects me when I share a personal story of the time and the date. And so you get the gist here that I had desperate faith. In this particular situation, my wife had uh, was being treated for fourth stage cancer. She's in her third uh, month or so of uh, intensive, strong chemotherapy, trying to save her life, and it wasn't going very well. She was uh, seemingly getting worse, and maybe the cure was killing her instead of the cancer, but she was in really bad shape, and I, I, knew, that unless, I knew that unless God did something, I was going to lose her. Had a, our oldest daughter, just a year old, and, and I was terrified. 
You know, when a man, listen, God has wired men to be fixers. We want to protect, provide, and we want to fix problems. That's just innate. That's who we are. And, And I couldn't fix it. I didn't have the resources to fix it. I was spending all that I could. I told the doctors, I said, hey, we own a, a small acreage. I'll sell it. I mean, we'll do anything. I was only, and, and the whole time I'm there, I'm at, and she's getting worse and worse, I think, God, why, was it, why, was it, why wasn't it me? Why, why her? And in my desperation, in the back of a, a <clears throat> step van, a route truck in northeast Kansas City, door shut and suddenly it's like it's just caved in on me and I fell to my knees and I started sobbing and crying and God you have to heal her God you have to heal her and just demanding of God a miracle and when I started just thinking oh people are going to hear me out here these aren't soundproof you know they're going to think I'm crazy and a still small voice. Do you know that God can speak to you? Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, they know my voice. He spoke to me. And he said, If I choose not to heal Donna, will you still believe that I am a God who can heal? And will you still trust me? And I started to argue with God. How many know that's not what you want to hear, right? And I said, but God. Anybody ever said, but God? You have to heal her. You have to. And I went through my tirade until I ran out of juice. And the still small voice came back in the same gentle tone. And asked me the same question. And I put my head down. Yes, God. I've seen you heal. And I trust you and I believe in you no matter what. Now, I can tell you, my desperation, listen, was like a fire that was burning and bringing torment. And when I surrendered everything to God in that moment of desperation, it was like a cooling flow of water came and put the fire out. And my heart was heavy, but I thought God is good no matter what. I put my faith in God. My desperate faith was in God and God alone. I didn't know what God had planned. I thought surely he's preparing me to take her home. And yet it was just a short time later during a Sunday evening service then an evangelist and my pastor came through and anointed her with oil and prayed over her and she got healed just like that. And that was a miracle. But you know what? If God had chosen to take her home, I was at a place where all I cared about was, God, you know what's best. And I trusted him. My desperate faith, God blessed, and I don't to this day understand why we were blessed with such incredible grace and mercy, but... Um, I would have trusted God no matter what. We get to the place where we're a desperate faith. We need to be in a place where we trust God no matter what. You know, really, only to hear, you know, God ask those questions to each of us. Will you still trust me in your desperation? 
if you don't get what you want, what you think you should have, what you think we deserve. This father, in his desperation, turned to Jesus. And, uh, you know, Bible scholars believe that he must have ridden possibly up to 20 miles across Galilee to find him, to figure out where he's at. He made the, uh, the effort. He, he could have gone elsewhere and could have been just as sincere and desperate about it, but sincerity alone is not enough to clear up the issue. It wasn't for the desperate father uh, calling out to Jesus, the miracle would not have happened. This desperate father went to the right source. He also went with faith, with faith. You remember the father who, or the one who said, uh, you know, Jesus asked him, do you believe when there was a healing that was needed? And he said, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes we're there, right? That's desperate faith. But listen to me. Faith is always, say always, Faith is always more than just an emotion or the tingly feelings. My mother was dying of cancer in the hospital and she was in ICU. My pastor, my spiritual father, who was dating my mother, which is kind of weird, but uh, you know, he went to the hospital to pray for her and he and his uh, daughter and, uh, and, and some of my siblings were there. He said, Tim, I prayed for your mother and I felt the power of the Holy Spirit move. And I believe God has healed her. Well, my mother wasn't healed. But you know what the power of God was there for? The power of God was there to comfort and to, and to demonstrate the reality of who God is. My mother's in heaven walking on golden streets today. And I'm going to see her again. But, you know, uh, he, he believed and uh, had faith that God had touched her. And I've seen other times when Pastor Fess would pray for people and they did get healed. But it's more than just emotion. It's more than kind of tingly feelings. It's, it's, it, 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 it never just stops at words and kind of uh, good professions of sincerity. Uh, but listen to what the nobleman did here, the father did. Number one, listen, he went to Jesus. He knew where to go. He pleaded his case. He prayed and asked for a miracle. Uh, he listened intently to what Jesus said. Sometimes we miss that stage, listened intently to what Jesus said, and then he took Jesus at his word. Notice when Jesus said, you may go, John 4.50, your son will live, and it simply says that the man took Jesus at his word and he left. He walked away believing that his prayer had been answered. Now, we talked about miracle-seeking, casual, and academic faith, and desperate faith. Number four, saving faith. Faith that saves for eternity and sustains in the emergencies of life and the issues of life will always produce a positive action. It takes God at his word and simply obeys what he tells us to do. Even, listen, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it's illogical, even if people are going to think you're crazy doing what Jesus, what Jesus tells you to do. I remember that old, this old hymn. I love the old hymns. I'm telling you, sometimes I think when I retire, I might look for a little church that sings nothing but hymns. I don't know. I'd probably get tired of that too, but I love the old hymns. And one of my favorites that we used to sing often, because I was a worship leader, is Trust and Obey. Anybody remember that old hymn? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. The nobleman's story 
was a great story because he obeyed. And uh, it really doesn't end here. He takes Jesus at his word. A little bit later, he's met by the servants who were sent out to tell him that his son was well. You can come home now. You know, everything's good. And he asks about the time. You remember that? One o'clock. And he says that he remembers that it was that same hour that Jesus said to him that you can go your son as well. I heard the story, you know, skeptics. Have anybody skeptics? A skeptic would say, but that's just a coincidence. Many people, when Donna got healed, thought, well, that's just a coincidence. Uh, it was a three months of uh, chemotherapy. must have worked faster, and yet the oncologist told her when she refused to take any more, he said, you are very sick. You need at least, at least 12 more months of treatments, or you're going to die. But they're skeptics who want to believe what they believe. Sometimes it's easier and more comfortable to believe that that really wasn't a miracle because if it was a miracle, then what do I have to decide about who God is? There's an old country preacher, I love this story, an old country preacher uh, who replied to a skeptic who said, that's just a coincidence. And, and the old country preacher without much education says, All's I, all I knows is that when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't pray, they don't. And, you know, just some wisdom in that, some folk wisdom there is that when you pray, what have you got to lose? Pray and seek after God and see what God will do. Have faith in God. The big idea here is people who turn to Jesus in faith don't believe in coincidences. They believe in God instances. John records an interesting note in the story at this point, and he says, when, when the father realized the timing of the event, he believed in Jesus. He had, hadn't he believed before? Somebody said, well, he must have believed enough to go seek Jesus out. Had he, hadn't he turned to Jesus before? Hadn't he taken him at his word? Of course he did. But there's an important progression of faith. We can start off with the basic level of faith, and, and, and as we continue to follow him, God will lead us up the stair steps of fully trusting in Christ as our Savior and our Lord. The first thing, he came, he came out of desperation. He believed in specific event or power. He heard about Jesus, what he has done for others. An old song, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. But once he understood who Jesus really was, his faith took on a whole new dimension. It is one thing to believe that Jesus answers my prayers of desperation or helps me in my emergencies, but it's altogether another matter to believe that he is the Lord of life, that he is worthy of me following him and obeying him all the way to the end of my life. So at this point of the story, the nobleman becomes a follower of Jesus, not just a miracle seeker or a desperate father. He becomes a personal believer and puts his full faith and trust in God. Now, there's another interesting footnote in the story that some Bible scholars point out, and we don't have any way of knowing for sure, but some feel or believe that this same nobleman is referred to by name later in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 13 when Luke records the call of Barnabas and Saul to their missionary ministry. And he takes note among those leaders who were in the church at Antioch through whom the Lord issued this directive, there was a man who was mentioned, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Acts 13.1. Perhaps Manan first came to Christ as that desperate father, that nobleman, and then became a true believer in Christ, who would later become, as he was discipled and grew in his faith, to be an important leader in the early church. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? 
My last level of faith here, I'm going to close with this, is contagious faith. What's really cool about this is that this man who trusted in Christ, the scriptures tell us that his whole family believed with him. His faith was contagious when he shared the story about Jesus. You know, once we find true conversion, are we contagious? You remember during the pandemic, we had to wear masks. We find out, some of you are going to disagree, but the mask really didn't do us a lot of good, but we didn't have a flu season. We were trying not to be contagious. We are trying to protect life, right? God help us as the church of Jesus Christ to be contagious in our faith, to let that spread faster than any coronavirus ever could. That when people see that we fully trust in Jesus Christ and hear the story of our faith in God, that people will believe, beginning first of all, as it did in this nobleman, in his own house, that his own house believed in Jesus. You know what I like to do? I like to tell the story to my grandchildren. I did it just about a month ago when my grandchildren, a couple of my grandchildren were there, they're 13, and, and uh, uh, his younger brother, I think he's 11, uh, and I was sitting there talking, and I said, did you know about what happened to Grandma when your Aunt Beth was just a little baby? No. And begin to share the story, and you could see the eyes get bigger because, you know what, they were not hearing just a Bible story that they hear in Sunday school or children's church. They were hearing a testimony of what really happened that really happened to their Grandma. And I'm just thinking, let our faith, dads, your faith in God, be contagious to your children and to your grandchildren. Let them catch the incredible bug of Christianity that will spread into their soul, into their being, and they too will climb the different levels of faith to where the rubber meets the road. It's not just an elementary academic faith, but a real faith because the rubber hit the road right where they live. That's my prayer for you today. Would you bow your heads in prayer today? Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, to invade the hearts and the minds and create incredible possibilities and power, Lord God, in the minds of each and every father and every parent here today. I pray that the children, Lord God, would hear the word of the Lord and realize how real and powerful it really is. And that they too would follow Christ as their Savior for the entire lives, Lord God. Because of what they've seen lived out in their own parents and their grandparents. I pray for grandfathers here today. That God, they have this golden opportunity, Lord God. Lord, to seize the moment and the opportunity of investing and Lord, impressing their grandchildren with the faith of God and Lord, the power of the Spirit. God, let us have contagious faith, we pray, in Jesus' name. And Lord God, we bless today each and every person that is here today, but especially, Lord God, the dads and the men here today. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask that you all stand, but I'm going to ask that dads would come forward just long enough for me to pray a prayer of blessing over you and your household. Would you do that real quickly?
I know we've gone over again. I'll blame that on somebody else later. But Come on down, God, guys. You'd move a lot faster if you were at the football game and the kickoff was ready to happen. So, yeah. Back there, act like you're shy. <laughs> come on, come on. Would you, would you, dads, you know what I love? I love children when they see their dads worship. And they see that there's a reality of something going on in here and they think, man, I want dad must be feeling something. Amen? Grandpa must be feeling something. You know, grandpa, this grandpa, 15 grandchildren, isn't too old or decrepit to lift my hands before the Lord. And when I pray for my grandchildren, for my family, I'm not ashamed to pray in the spirit and afraid to lay hands on them and, and trust that God's spirit is going to move in them. This thing is important. We need to pass this on. And so, Father, today I pray a blessing, Lord, over these men today, those who are here and the men who are still in the, in the chairs, God, but you see them and you touch them today. That, Lord, you would uh, set their hearts on fire for God. That, Lord, that they would be dads who would not be afraid or embarrassed to call on the name of the Lord. Lord, in times of need. Lord, when issues happen in their family, God, it's an opportunity, Lord God, to demonstrate to their children and to their wives that we can call on the name of the Lord. So many times dads try to fix things in their own power and they just need to call on God and say, God, help us. We need help. And then, Lord, when you show up and you do a miracle, Lord, I pray that these men would share with their family, this is what God did after we prayed. Do you remember when we prayed? This is what God did. Lord, to instill in their children, their grandchildren, a living faith that is active and alive. And Lord, changes lives. And God, I pray this in the powerful and the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now, in the name of Jesus, stretch your hand for the blessing this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. And may he give you peace. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. Make sure Deanna's back there. Give him praise. Amen. Deanna's back there with a gift for you that you'll enjoy. Have a great day.